0: Good morning, church. Good morning. Wow. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans. We are um, on our second week in our, uh, what's hopefully going to be a very long study in Romans because there is a tremendous amount in Romans. And um, last week we had kind of a good news, bad news situation. Um, We'll start with the bad news, I guess. The bad news was that um, according to what we've already read in Romans, there's nothing that we can do to produce the kind of goodness or righteousness that all of us long for. There is no way that we can produce or come up with the ability to be the people that even the people around us need us to be. For them, that our families need us to be, that our friends need us to be, that our world needs us to be in order for it to go the way God intended it to go. That's the bad news. Uh, Kind of a bummer, I guess. Uh, But the good news is that there is a righteousness that comes to us, and the way that Paul describes it is that it comes to us from outside of us. That righteousness comes to us from God. He is the one who causes it, creates it, makes it happen, and then he gives it to us and we must receive it. That's a very humbling thing for many of us. It's very hard for many of us to, I think, be, uh, be content with that situation because we like the idea of us producing goodness ourselves. But nevertheless, that is what Paul tells us in Romans. Uh, but that begs a question, and the question is, why can't we do this? Why is it apparently so bad things and us that there just is no way that we're going to be able to produce the kind of righteousness or goodness that, uh, that it seems like we really need. And this is where we begin to look in this next part of Romans chapter 1. If, if you have a Bible and you're open to Romans, you can, uh, we're going to be in Romans 18 through 20. And uh, we'll read it together and then we'll kind of take some time to go through this because it is, it is incredible the claim that Paul makes about God, our Creator, in these three verses alone. Romans 1, 18-20 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. And we'll stop right there. This is a huge boast that Paul makes here. And we're going to look at this one verse at a time. Why are we apparently so messed up? Why are things so bad? Why do we desperately depend on God's righteousness and have no ability to, 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 to create this in ourselves? Paul begins by explaining just what's going on here. He says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So Paul begins talking about God's wrath, the wrath of God, which is a distinct thing like the righteousness of God, and the wrath of God, he says a few things about it here in this one single verse that tells us everything we need to know about it. Uh, The first is that God's wrath is just. For He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It is revealed um, against people who deserve it, is what Paul says. He says God's wrath is being revealed against all people because all people deserve it. It first and foremost, he describes it as the wrath of God and as this thing that comes from heaven. It comes from God. It comes down from God. The idea being that this is just because it is not something that comes from, from Satan, from the enemy. It is not something that comes from some other bad place. It's not even a punishment, God's wrath, that he uses to fix or change us, which is important. The wrath of God is the result of a God who loves justice and who loves what is right and who cares about what happens in his creation and with his children. Because every single sin that is committed, every wrong that is committed in this world, there is a cost to it. Now, many of us learn early on in life that if we're ever going to have any friends or any relationships that last longer than like a day, we're going to have to be willing to overlook the cost of wrongs that are done. And we're going to have to hope quite a bit that people will overlook the wrongs that we commit, the things that we do. We recognize that's just the nature of being a flawed human. Because we recognize that if if someone says something they shouldn't say, does something they shouldn't do, that that has an effect on someone else. Uh, There is no victimless crime. There is no sin that doesn't actually bring about a little bit more death and destruction into this world in which we live. And because ours is a just God who loves his creation and loves his children, when sin happens, when unrighteousness happens, because he is just, then his wrath is the response to that. It must be responded to. It must be reacted to. And this is what God's wrath is. It's the natural occurrence of the sin that happens in the world. It's a pretty dim, bleak thing to start with here. But it is a reality in the world in which we live, and it is a reality for any person who hopes to understand why things are the way that they are. Why can we not produce righteousness ourselves? Because we are subject to and deserving of God's wrath because of what we have done or failed to do, and each and every person as well is guilty. We embrace uh, the grace that God has in our society a lot more than we embrace The wrath that God has. We are prone to like the mercy and the love and the forgiveness of God much more than we are prone to love the justice of God. Now, uh, that's likely because we live pretty cushy lives, to be honest. We have only endured so much of the negative effects of sin in the world that because we've been fairly sheltered, uh, when you look at historically what human beings have endured from one another over the ages, that we tend to look and think, eh, "We're all doing pretty well, actually." I mean, the people around me, the people I care about, the people in my life, me, I, I'm not that bad. So uh, I like the idea of a God of, of love, of grace. Uh, all day and all night. What I have a bit of a harder time with is the idea of a God who brings about this thing called just wrath. Well, talk to someone from a culture or from a time in history in which things weren't quite so peaceful, in which the sins of people created exponentially greater pain and suffering than some of what we experience today, and you would recognize and and encounter a people who often struggle to accept God as a forgiving God, A merciful God, and are more than happy to believe in the wrath of God. Because as you see the injustice in the world around you, you go, if there is a God, then he must care about this. And if he cares about this, then he must have a response. Wrath of God is just because it's deserved, it's earned by the people who are unrighteous. But Things get worse for us because not only is it just, but it's universal. And what that means is exactly what you're afraid it means. It applies to every single human being who is alive. Everyone who has lived other than Jesus himself. Uh, One theologian put it this way. He said, the history of the world is the judgment of the world. The things that we see uh, around us in this world, so much of the history of our world, is us watching the judgment of God play out because we are watching the wrath of God in response to many of the things that have happened, all of the things that have happened that are not how he intended. Paul says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What he means by this is all men are unrighteous and ungodly. That's a pretty big statement. So ungodly is what it means for a person to understand God's commands, rules, and expectations for his people and to still break them. That's ungodly. That's kind of like I know the rules of the house and I'm breaking the rules of the house. Unrighteousness is broader than that. Unrighteousness is... People who are sinning and doing things that are wrong, not even because they know uh, the law, the commands, the things that God has for his people and his creation. They simply are doing things that are unrighteous in that they, they go against the very fabric of the creation that God has made, right? There are things that we inherently know are wrong. We inherently know that no one should do these things. People should not treat one another certain ways. People should not do certain things. And so when people do those things, those people are exhibiting unrighteousness. And you don't have to know anything the Bible says about what God wants or desires or expects for his creation to be unrighteous and to choose to do unrighteous things and to know unrighteousness when you see it. For, for a culture that lacks a very clear understanding of what God cares about in terms of good and bad, we have a very, very strong sense of justice, do we not? We are very quick to point a finger at a person and say, you are, they are, that group is unrighteous, they are wrong, they are bad, they are unloving, whatever words we would use to describe it. And Paul says that people are either guilty of ungodliness or they're guilty of unrighteousness. Either way, the rules have been broken. You can't, you can't really expect a non-believer to be godly because they have not probably Uh, completely become aware of and, and agreed to live according to what God wants for his children, but you can certainly expect one to be unrighteous along with believers themselves. This doesn't leave anybody out. When he says that everyone is without excuse, when Paul says that everyone, this applies to everyone, what he means is that this isn't just a generational thing. This isn't just because there were a couple of times and there was a war and things got really bad. It's not like he ever looks at at a country or a group of people and says, man, you guys are really handling this election, not nearly as well as the last one or something like that. So you guys are guilty, but those guys, they did well. They weren't. No, it is... Choices that are made by every individual person of every generation that comes and we continue to make them again and again and again, which is why God's wrath is universal, Paul says. And the other thing that it is, is it is controversial. Imagine for a moment two children who are left home alone. You have an older one and a younger one. And they get bored, doesn't take that long. And they say, uh, You know, uh, let's get some pizza. Let's order some pizza. They'll bring it here to our house. The only problem is, as their kids, they don't have any money because their parents were smart and they left them home alone without money. And they say, well, we know where the emergency money is, right? So let's go get that and let's order some pizza and let's have a good day together. I'm sure they'd want us to, right? There's a point at which the younger would ask the older, um, is this okay? And perhaps the older child would turn and say to the younger child that basically death sentence to both of them, which is mom and dad won't care, right? (laughs) Mom and dad won't care. Thus begins the greatest and worst day of their entire life, potentially, right? Because from that point on, mom and dad won't care, mom and dad won't care. Mom and dad get home and mom and dad absolutely care. You see, there's a point very, very early on before the sin is actually committed in which the older tells the younger, it's okay, they won't care. And what happens in that is the truth is suppressed. So the thing that has to happen in order for us to be unrighteous, in order for us to be ungodly, is that we have to choose to suppress the truth. Why? Because God is perfect and good and loving and wonderful. And so everything that he says is good. And so the only way that we could possibly justify choosing to go against him is that before all of that happens, we say, you know what? Something about him and what he calls us to isn't really what he says he is. It isn't really true. The truth of God has to be suppressed in order for us to sin. And what Paul's talking about here in these three verses is what it looks like when a people collectively suppress the truth of God. He basically is saying, you know who God is and you know that he's there and you know that he cares. But because you've suppressed the truth of God, because you have said, nope, I'm going to say that's not true, he doesn't care, and I might even tell other people that as well. I think in many ways the analogy of an older and a younger sibling is appropriate because how often do we pass on the suppression of truth to other people? Do we see people do that in our world today? Do we say God doesn't care about this or we say, well, that's not real or even he's not real? But in doing that, we suppress the truth. Because the truth itself is suppressed about God, then some things uh, that that should be widely known and understood and embraced by all of God's creation are not. And the result of it is that when His wrath comes, His wrath which is just and which is universally deserved, what is the result? We say that's not right. Because I'm pretty sure we established a while back that He's not going to care about this. And I'm pretty sure that we established, maybe even before that, that he is probably not even there. So you can't tell me that God's wrath is is all of these things. Because if you say that to me, my argument against you would be, I don't agree with that standard that you give. I don't agree with that God that you proclaim is there doing these things and allowing these things to happen. Uh, The first step according to Paul... In Romans, in his case of what the gospel is, is this, is that people suppress the truth of God. And when people do that, all the other bad stuff happens after. It is just, it is universal, but because we've suppressed the truth of God for a lie, we debate and are uncomfortable with, and see it as dubious and controversial, this idea of God's wrath for us. Paul goes on and he says, after establishing that God's wrath is poured out on everyone. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. He elaborates now on how exactly we've suppressed the truth of God. And this is where Paul is going to spend uh, the majority of these verses here, is focusing not specifically on the wrath of God. Believe me, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll go from black and white to color for sure. Uh, PG-13, no question about it, right? But what he says here and emphasizes here is exactly how bad it is and why and how people have chosen to suppress this truth of God. He says, what can be known about God is plain to people because God has shown it to them. This is a bold statement to make. That what can be known about God is clear to us. It is plain to us, meaning God is not hidden and the truth of him is not hidden. Why, he says, not by accident, because God has chosen to show it to them. We have that statement, ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? The idea that you, even if you don't know all of the laws, if you break one, you are still subject to it and the penalties of it. I think that what Paul's talking about here goes a step further than ignorance of the law. He's going the step of ignorance of the entire government and king over the kingdom. Imagine for a moment you're out on a boat or something, and you land on a, on a beach, and you don't know what the island is, but it looks, it looks deserted, and you and maybe a friend of yours, maybe a little brother, maybe you got uh, you know, sent away because of everything that happened with the pizza, and now you're on an island, and you say, we'll start our own life. I've read some books about this. This will go well for us, right? And you get there and you realize there's no one here. There's nothing here. This is our land. So let's do what we want with it. Uh, A couple hours later, uh, out stroll some police officers. uh, And they say, hey, what are you doing here? Uh, This is a nation. uh, And we have laws. And we have a leader. And we have actually many leaders. And uh, so knock it off. And then they leave. Uh, the choice to then say, I'm going to pretend like I didn't hear any of that. Anyway, this is our own land. This is our own place. This is our beach, and we're going to start our own life. It goes beyond ignorance of the law to ignorance of the fact that anyone is actually over this at all. This is what Paul's saying that we do. He's saying that we are born and we begin to live these lives, and we say, This world is mine and it's yours, it's all of ours collectively, and whatever we choose to make of it, and whatever we decide that it should be, then let's make it that thing. Completely ignoring the fact that God has revealed himself as the one who actually made all of this and is the authority over it. Paul does not mince words here. Even though so many people don't seem to believe in God, even though so many people don't seem to believe in uh, the God that Paul's talking about here in Rome, his argument to them is very clear, very simple. What can be known about God is plain to you. Because God has shown it. Not many people feel that way. I've talked to many Christians who don't feel that way who feel that uh, god is not plain is not visible is not evident is not easy to see through everything else but paul with great confidence is saying that's not true it's a pretty bold statement to make he goes on to explain exactly how god has done that in this he says for his invisible attributes Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So Paul goes from uh, God is clearly seen to how God is clearly seen, which is this. He says God has used physical creation and nature... To do this God has revealed himself to you through the world that he's made in a variety of different ways but it's evident in uh, in what we see around us and even what we experience as we go about living on this planet in this creation in this universe in which God has made we refer to this concept as natural revelation The idea that there are things that God makes known about himself that you don't even need to have a Bible in your hand to know is true about him, which is that he exists. That a God created all of this, that someone began this and has authority over it and stands outside of it. My daughter's really good at uh, cloud animals, seeing cloud animals. Uh, we'll just be out doing stuff and then randomly she'll point up at the sky and say, you know, that's like a, that's like a a, a jack in the box. And you're like, what? And then you look and sure enough, there's like this thing and like a thing and a thing and you're like, well, that's kind of scary, right? She's very good at seeing them, right? You ever been with somebody and uh, you're either looking up at the clouds, such shapes, uh, probably not likely because, you know, we're all busy, we have things to do, and here it's all just a big gray mess, but uh, have you ever been with someone who sees things in clouds, right, and say, look at that, that's a turtle and it's racing a hare, and you look up and you say, that looks like maybe mashed potatoes or like a scoop of ice cream, but that's kind of what they look like anyway, right? Uh, that idea of looking and seeing these things than that other people looking and seeing and you going, I'm not sure. Uh, Unfortunately, that's about as far as most Christians will go with the idea of natural revelation. We'll simply look at something and say, you're not, you don't, what, seriously? You don't, are you kidding me? Whatever, and then that's it. That is the extent of our natural revelation discussions with people who don't see that God uh, exists in his creation. We walk away exasperated saying, you know what? If you don't see it, then I can't help you, right? Paul goes a little bit of a step further than this throughout Scripture in various places, as do the other authors of Scripture. But there's a lot more to natural theology than just look at that thing and tell me you don't believe in God. Beyond the mountain, the clouds, uh, a human life, or love between people. Uh, Paul says that nature uses the physical material reality to show us non-material things. Uses the physical world around us, God's creation. It says this very clearly here. When you translate this out, it says exactly what it looks like. It says... That there are things about God that are his invisible attributes, the things that cannot be physically seen uh, by, by eyes, by the eyes that we have. And those things are very important. Namely, it says his eternal power and his divine nature, but those things have still been perceived, okay? So you can't see them, but you perceive them, which is really weird. Your perceptions are telling you that there is something there that you cannot physically see. It's a bit like walking around in the dark and having an idea of what still might be there. And he says this has been true ever since the creation of the world because it is in the things that have been made in the creation of the world. And because of that, we just have no excuse. We are all prone, we are all prone to look at the complexity the beauty, the design, the intentionality of creation and say that it was made and that there is a mind, there is a sense to what we experience here, that there is, a, there is someone or something behind it. People of every culture and every time have looked up and said, where does this all come from? And have looked up in an effort to answer that question. Two of the most important aspects of God, uh, Paul shows us, are these unseen things. His eternal power, and this word for power, dynamos, does not mean like an internal combustion engine that keeps everything moving. Like there's actually a physical like source that is just like keeping all the gears turning and the planets spinning and the stars burning and the black holes being black holes, whatever they do and sucking stuff into them and not letting them out unless you have to travel through space and all that stuff. Like that God's not an engine that keeps all the mechanical things going. It's saying that the power, this, this eternal power, means authority. His authority is eternal. And that what we see when we look at God's creation and the universe itself is we see that there is... Someone in charge of it. Not just someone who made it, but someone who is in charge of it, standing outside of it. Paul says that is clear to us from what we see in creation. He also speaks to God's divine nature. The fact that God wasn't born, God did not become, and God is not part of the creation himself. These are two things that every culture and every people have since the beginning. Presumed is true of the world. That there is someone, something that created it and in some way guides it that we have to find a way to respond to, that we have to find a way to interact with, whether it be sacrificing people or, or plants or doing dances or singing songs or whatever else we come up with, because something has to happen because there's someone in charge of whether the rain comes next year and whether this person lives through this thing and whether those enemies defeat us, whether I even get up tomorrow, whether the sun does as well. And that every culture and every people on earth all of creation, have looked and said that that thing that is there must be bigger than all of this stuff that is here. The answer isn't here. The answer is up there. Paul says, basically, I'm not going to argue with you because you know that you think that. He's really speaking about others. He's speaking about those outside of this Christian community who one would be presenting the news of the gospel to. Now, we have all kinds of fancy words for these things, this, these, these um, ways that we seek to um, use things like apologetics and philosophy and science to explain the, very, uh, the evidence of the fact that God exists. We have, these, we have the cosmological argument, which basically says, where did it all come from? And there has never been a study, there has never been a photo from a telescope, there has never been a single piece of physical evidence that we found that says, now we know where it all came from. In fact, the best that we really can do is uh, guess about the best possibility for where it all came from, uh, presuming that God isn't there. That's generally what uh, we try to do now, is we say, "Well, let's remove God from it because there's no way to really measure anything having to do with Him." And so, uh, so now let's just figure it out based on based on everything else. Here's our best guess. Here's our best guess. That's the furthest that we've gotten. There's the teleological argument, which basically says, this is all so fine-tuned. There's knobs and dials that had to be turned perfectly for all of this to even work in our universe in which we live. Uh, And in the very same way, we look at it and we say, there is design behind this, there is complexity to it, and there must be a God. And in the very same way, there is nothing that we have ever found that says to us, oh, here's how we know that the universe in which we live that requires all of this fine-tuning and everything to possibly exist, like there's like a one in multiple trillions of chances that even were there a big bang to begin it, that that bang would begin anything at all anyways. The best possible answer that we have for that. The best possible answer is, well, most likely then, the only thing we can explain is that there's a lot of multiple realities of dimensional universes, and there's a one in a trillion chance, And guess what, everybody? We're the luckiest people ever because we're in it. Other than that, that's the best we can give you right now. One author used a really great analogy of, a, like a firing squad of a hundred people lined up uh, firing bullets at a person. Uh, presuming who had committed a crime, I guess. We, we presume that for the sake of this. We don't have to be upset about that. We can focus on the next part. They all yell fire and everybody misses. Now, you could certainly look at every one of those hundred and say, well, there might be a reason for this and a reason for that, and this gun might have misfired, and this person might have sneezed, and this person might have gone blind suddenly, and this person might have just been, you know, had a bug in their eye. Uh, Yes, if you were to do the math of adding up all of the different ways that a hundred bullets could have missed that target, yeah, you're maybe in the billions and trillions. Yeah, that that is theoretically possible, if you have to explain it in any other way besides what one might say is the obvious explanation, which is, hey, you know, while you're figuring all that out, can I pull these hundred guys in a room and ask them some questions about how they feel about this guy? Because I'd just like to start there, right? What Paul is saying, as he's saying, and then there's a, then there's a moral argument, which we're gonna, we're, we have a lot to talk about over the course of the time that we're in Romans because Paul talks quite a bit about this. Basically, the idea that Like You you cannot talk about right and wrong. You cannot talk about good versus bad. You cannot talk about how how do we believe in God when there is so much evil in the world without appealing to something that tells you what is even good or evil at all. And we live in a very unique time now where 20 years ago even, 15 years ago, people were saying nobody was going to believe in truth anymore. Nobody was going to have conviction about things because we're all so postmodern. Does it feel like we live in a time where people don't have conviction about things? Does it feel like we live in a time where people don't care about claims on truth? Absolutely not. Everyone feels very strongly about everything now. We live in a time in which people appeal quite a bit to what is right and what is wrong. And we will simply say, because I know it is. We have a lot riding on the very fundamental value of human life, Equality amongst people, and all of these things were birthed out of a Judeo-Christian worldview that says that it is actually uh, better to treat people as equal, even if they're physiologically not capable of all doing the same things. That that a person uh, who is not able to fend for themselves should be protected and cared for. None of none of the concepts that we base the idea of human rights and justice. And, uh, and really, like, morality-based people living together in a society are not things that come from the idea of let's all just let the fittest survive. Paul says it's clear. When you look at the world around us, you have to have a reason to not start asking what God made this. Who stands outside of this that caused it to be, and why do we care so much about it being a certain way? Now, oftentimes we get sort of stuck in this place as Christians in trying to explain this stuff of saying, well, then that means that there's got to be this kind of battle, this war between what we do with science and what we do with faith, that maybe Christians are supposed to be people of faith and not necessarily people who care so much about what all these other, these scientists might be saying, who seem to be dead set on proving wrong this idea of who God is and what his word says is true. In reality, it's not really quite like that. Because science hasn't disproved anything about God. Science hasn't disproved the things that the Bible says, the things that Paul himself is saying are obvious and true to us about God. What has happened is that as we have developed more and more of a dependence and I think an identity around the things that we discover and that we test and that we prove and that we replicate in laboratories that we have begun to presume that the only things that matter are the things that we can prove doing scientific experiments. It's, we live in this weird time and place where uh, people clearly care a lot about things, are willing to risk their lives and sacrifice their lives for things that cannot be proven by what we learn through science. And yet we also live in a time where we generally will agree that if it can't be proven with science, then, you know, it probably isn't that important. It's like, it's like, it's not at all consistent and we all kind of know it, but we don't really know what else to do. Why on earth would we have such a schizophrenic approach to the world around us and life and our society and learning what it is for something to really be true or not to be true? It is simple. Because even though God is clear in his creation, there is something within us that wants another way. It's that simple. We've made the mistake of believing that because something is inherently true in our minds, that because we like see it around us and we're prone to believe that thing, that somehow that makes a thing bad. Well, we don't say that about loving people. We don't say that about me wanting the same rights for you as for myself or me wanting you to be protected if you're weak and need protection. But we do this about the things of God so much of the time. One of the things that you find if you look at the stories of people who are deeply intellectual, very educated, and who have gone from non-faith to faith is that they will say, that it wasn't data that changed their mind. They will say it was finally not ignoring what they already believed. They would say, there was a part of me that knew this was true, and I was spending this much of my life saying all the reasons why it wasn't true. That for people to be converted to believing in the God of the Bible that that step is less about being presented with facts and being convinced by the data, and it is more about admitting something that you already knew was true instead of running from it, which is what we have a tendency to do. Paul, remember, he is not speaking specifically to a bunch of religious Jewish people who grew up with the Ten Commandments and with um, the God Jehovah and and, and Yahweh that they talk about in the Old Testament. He is speaking to a church comprised of Greek people, or uh, Greek-speaking people, people who are uh, Gentiles in the Roman Empire. These people grew up with Roman gods in the Roman Empire. They grew up believing that their own governors and leaders were, in some way, gods themselves. He's speaking to people who grew up not presented with the truth of the Old Testament and the laws and the prophets, and yet still he's saying to them, you knew God was real, and they all do as well. It's an incredibly bold statement to make, is it not? How how well does it go when you're arguing with someone to just be like, no, you know that, no, no. You don't believe that. You don't believe that. I mean, you can try it. It doesn't usually go very well. That's not true. You don't believe that. I know you don't mean that. I know you can't possibly believe that. And this is essentially what Paul is saying. What we know of Paul is he is an incredibly effective evangelist. Paul has compassion on all different sorts of people. There's a a boldness to his words here as he begins his argument for the gospel. And this boldness comes from him saying very clearly, you know that God is evidence in his physical creation. We have to go to lengths to tell each other he's not. We have to be told by people why that would be a ridiculous thing to believe. He says, Those who doubt must, here's where it gets confusing, doubt their doubt. Those who are skeptical must ask, Why am I a skeptic? Uh, there is so much in these three verses that gives us confidence in what many of us know and have felt is true about God and yet there are many of us who read these words and see these things and say, I want to believe all of those things about God. Why would I want to live in a world or a universe in which God is not real and He doesn't love me? One of the crazy things is, like, there's lots of reasons why we would want to believe that we live in a universe in which God is not real. And one of the first things is his very wrath. We live in a world where we lament the pain and the suffering all around us, but none of us are willing to step up and pay the penalty for it and say, I'll do my part and all. You're right, I'm a part of this thing that's turned into a mess around us. With God comes justice and truth and accountability. With God comes the way that he intended for his creation to exist and be. And it is no longer something that we all get to collectively decide how we want it to go. This is incredible because apart from the natural revelation of God in Scripture or in in, in the world around us that we see, he has given us this, his special revelation. He has shown us his truth. And the question for us when we look at this thing that Paul has said in these three verses alone is simply this. If If there is truth in God, if there is truth, all the more truth in this that he has given us, how much do I look to this as truth? In all of the opinions that I have, and all of the perspectives, and all of the thoughts, and all the words that come out of my mouth, and all the arguments that I make, in the way that I go about living my life, and the values that shape my very life, how much of that is from here? How much of that is from the author of the universe? And how much of that is from me? You know, I honestly think that the uh, source of authority that is most in competition with the creator of the whole universe is not the most educated scientists who are doing the greatest discoveries. It is not the most compelling authors who seem to take things about the world and, and put them into words that make it so beautiful. It is not the greatest artists or anyone else. It is us. The greatest thing that stands in the way of God, the creator of the universe, being the authority that I recognize in my life, is that I want to be the authority that I recognize in my life. I mean, i got to be honest. I feel like I've got some pretty good ideas. I feel like I've got some good things to say, obviously. (laughs) But I am not the authority in my life. No matter how much I may learn about God from his special revelation, no matter how much may seem obvious to me from his natural revelation, there is no amount that I will learn or nothing that I will be shaped into on this side of heaven where I ever find truth apart from who God is and what he is. Otherwise, it's just my thoughts, my ideas, the way I want it to be. Paul is very clear. The wrath of God... The wrath of God is deserved by all mankind. Why? Because we have chosen unrighteousness and ungodliness. Why? Because before all of that happened, we did something that sort of doomed us. We suppressed the truth of God. We took the very obvious truth of who He is and what He is in our life, and we said, I'm not so sure about that. Everything else that happened happened as a result. Don't, I would encourage you to not think about other people, to not think about other groups, to not think about those outside the walls of the church who may have done that right now because unfortunately I don't think there's a whole lot that you can do this morning about that. What you are to ask and to think about is, have I taken the truth of God and who he is and said it's something else, said he intends something else and wants something else? because when I do that, it sure gives me a lot more freedom about how I go about this life of mine. Let's reflect on that as we continue to worship this morning. Well, pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for your word. I am grateful for the fact that the Bible gives us confidence that your word, that Paul's words are unashamed, Lord. As he said last week, as we said last week, he said, I am unashamed of the gospel. And one of the things that Paul is unashamed by unashamed about, is the fact that you are clearly evident in your creation. Father, you have, you have um, written your law upon our hearts. You have given us a love for one another and for you, and you have designed a, an entire universe that we, we cannot explain, God. Father, the more that we learn, it just expands this creation that you've made. The more that we've learned, it just expands the bigness of what you have done with your hands, Lord. Would you humble us and give us a sense of how powerful and real you are? And would you help us to be people who help others see that you are already there, Lord? God, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.